The other day, uh, somebody said to me, are you happy uh, that you're retiring? It uh, kind of took me off guard for a moment. I had to think about that. And finally, I replied, well, I think I am. <laughs> but here's the deal. Happiness is kind of an elusive term, don't you think? Uh, Webster's defines it as feeling pleasure and enjoyment because of your life situation. But all of us have experienced or have, know folks who have experienced difficult life situations and yet seem happy. How is that? Is it something more, perhaps? I mean, I had a good life growing up, great parents, stable home life where I felt loved and accepted, never had to worry about the basic needs of life, had lots of opportunities come my way. But I didn't always feel completely happy. I think what was missing is that I had the need to feel that my life had meaning, that it had purpose. In fact, it was this pursuit of purpose that finally brought me to faith in Christ. The Bible has a word for happy, and it's the word blessed. Jesus used it in the Sermon on the Mount. Happy are the poor in spirit, he said. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are the meek. That doesn't really sound like a great life situation, does it? And he goes on, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Happy are the merciful. Happy are the pure in heart. Clearly, happiness is more than just a feeling. It's more than just having pleasure about your life situation. Well, today we start a 40-day journey of Lent, and we're using the Psalms as our guide. As you may know, there are 150 Psalms divided up into five books. And they're written actually over a period of several centuries and include authors such as Moses, King David, Solomon, a guy named Heman, Ethan, Asaph, and the sons of Korah. There are wisdom psalms, there are royal psalms, there are psalms of thanksgiving, prayers for help, temple liturgies, and hymns. Some of the psalms are prophetic psalms about the coming of a Messiah, and some are psalms of lament. And because they are poetry, they express a wide range of emotions that speak to the heart. Some of them are very emotional, and some will even offend you because of their violent anger and bitterness. But the Psalms have been called the hymn book of the Old Testament, and so they are. Clearly, they were meant to be sung in worship in fact, you'll find musical notations besides some of them that say something like a song or to the tune of or for the director of worship. Thousands of years later, the people of God still use them in our worship. I love the Psalms, and I try every day to read a psalm out loud, and I hope that through this this series during Lent, that you'll find them a rich treasury of devotion and a way to help you talk to God. Today we begin at the beginning with Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord 
and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So Psalm 1 is called a wisdom psalm, and it compares and contrasts two very different kinds of lives, the wicked and the righteous. And it begins with the negative, what the blessed ones do not do. They don't walk with the wicked, they don't stand in the way sinners take, they don't sit in the company of mockers. And then he puts it in positive terms by describing what they do do. They delight in the law of the Lord and they meditate on it day and night. And then he uses two agricultural images to illustrate the differing results. The righteous are like a tree that is planted by a stream that yields fruit and its leaf never withers. In other words, the righteous will get through those dry seasons of life that we all experience. The wicked, he says, though, are like chaff. Now, for you non-farmers, the chaff is that part of the harvested grain that is thrown away. It's not used for anything. So we have two very different outcomes, and we have a choice. We can live life God's way, or we can live life our way. We can lead the happy life, or we can lead the life that leads to destruction. So if you want to be blessed, if you want to be happy, if you want to live life God's way, then he says you need to meditate on the law of the Lord. Now the Hebrew word for law there is Torah. It's understood as instruction. And the word for meditate means literally to mutter. Now I don't know exactly what he means by that. I mean I mutter sometimes under my breath. But obviously, meditate didn't mean back then what it means to us today. In fact, did you know that reading silently to yourself is kind of a new phenomenon? That that prior to the 18th century, most people read out loud. It didn't become popular until books became uh, easily affordable by most people. You see, before that, a few people could afford books, only the wealthy. And when they read them, they always read them out loud as a group. In fact, books were so rare that it was not uncommon to go to a library and find most of them, at least the more valuable ones, chained. If you went to a medieval church, you would find the Bible on the pulpit chained to keep it from wandering away. Why does a psalmist instruct us to delight in God's word and to meditate on it day and night. Let me give you a couple reasons. First of all, it will strengthen your faith. And that's a promise. It will make you a stronger follower of Christ. Acts 20 says, And now I entrust you to God and his care and to his wonderful words. They're able to build your faith and give you all the inheritance of those who are set apart for himself. Now there's lots of things that will strengthen your faith. The means of grace. Uh, it might be a small group. If you're in a small group, 
That may help your faith. Uh, You might read a Christian book. That could strengthen your faith. You might be around Christian friends. That will help. They they will help strengthen your faith. You come to worship, listen to a sermon. Hopefully, that strengthens your faith. You can join one of our Bible studies. But my friends, there is no substitute for you daily getting into the Scriptures, learning how to feed yourself from God's Word. So you don't have to wait around for your weekly Bible study. You don't have to wait or rely upon others. Those who are daily immersing themselves in God's Word are the ones who will see the most spiritual growth. God's Word will strengthen your faith. But it will also guide your decisions. God promises to help us in our decision-making process to give us wisdom if we will follow it. Some of the greatest decision makers in our country have pointed back to God's word to enhance and to guide their decisions. Many of our presidents have done the same. George Washington once said, it's impossible to rightly govern the world without God in the Bible. Abraham Lincoln said that the Bible is the best gift that God has given to us. It enables us to know right from wrong. Theodore Roosevelt said, a thorough knowledge of the Bible is worth more than a college education. And I would say it's a lot cheaper, too. Those of you who have kids about ready to go off to college, just buy them a Bible and save the money for something else. One leader that I admire is Condoleezza Rice. In an interview, she described a a time when she grew very complacent about her faith after going to Stanford University. She stopped going to church. She stopped reading her Bible regularly. And after her freshman year at Stanford, she realized that she needed God more than she thought. She said, I I realized that not only could I not rest on the laurels of my parents' faith, but I couldn't rest on the laurels of my own faith, that it takes constant tending and work to do that. But if we will, God promises us to guide us through Psalm 119 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I I love that imagery, that God's word shines like a flashlight, guiding our path, keeping us from stumbling in our dark moments. When I was a young Christian and trying to make uh, a decision, uh, I would sometimes, out of desperation, I would close my eyes and I would open up my Bible and I'd put my finger down and I'd read whatever uh, verse my finger landed on. And, and it landed on Matthew 27, verse 5, and it said, Judas went out and hanged himself. <laughs> now, well, that, that doesn't help me any. So I, I opened my Bible, another chapter, and I put my finger down, and it landed right on Luke 10, verse 37, that said, go and do likewise. <laughs> so I stopped that. Doesn't work. Not a good idea. Wouldn't recommend it. But it will guide you if you will delight in it. It will also enhance your life. It will help take you to that next level. A famous verse in the Old Testament, Joshua chapter 1, verse 8 says, Do not let this book of law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written. Now's the promise. He says, "Then, then you'll be prosperous and successful. 
Now, of course, what we mean by success and what God means by it may be very different. It's not about what you own. It's not about what you have. It's about living according to God's word. It's about how you treat other people. It's about how you live in this world. It's about how you go about doing kingdom business. That's, that's success. That's being prosperous. But not only that, it will change your heart. And that's a biggie. You see, when, when your heart is changed, then your life is changed. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says, For the word of God is full of living power. It is sharper than the sharpest knife, cutting deep into our innermost desires. It exposes us for what we really are. See, when you allow God's word to soak in your life, it begins to cut away the junk. It begins to cut away the stuff that accumulates over the years that keeps you from living life to the fullest. It changes you. It changes your life. It changes your heart. So if we want to live the blessed life, if we want to live the, the happy life, we need to meditate on God's word. How do we do that? How do we spend time on a regular basis in God's word? Well, it begins by reading it. <laughs> James 1.25 says, those who look intently into the perfect law, and that word look means to, to stoop down, it means to gaze into, so it's, it's more than just a casual glance, it's a, it's a steady gaze, and so we need to read the Bible, we need to do it on a daily basis, we need to investigate it. In Matthew 22, the Sadducees uh, came to Jesus to ask him a question about the resurrection. You see, the, the Sadducees were one of the religious groups in Jesus' day, and they didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in a resurrection. And so they're trying to figure out what Jesus believed. And so they put forth this hypothetical question about a, a woman who was, who was married seven times. And then they asked Jesus the question, well, whose wife will she be in heaven since she married seven times? And Jesus said to them, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures and you do not know the power of God. So here are these, these religious elites, these teachers of the day who weren't even familiar with the scriptures. As a result, they didn't know the power of God. You see, my friends, you can't know the power of God until you know the promises of God, okay? But we need to do more than just read. We need to receive it. We need to receive it with acceptance. Again, James writes in chapter one, he says, humbly, Accept the word planted in you, which can save you. So I, I must receive God's word if I'm going to be blessed, but I have to welcome it into my life. I have to be receptive. Now, sometimes we come to the scriptures to try to disprove it, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's not all bad. Honest inquiry can be a good thing. Lee Strobel was a hard-bitten agnostic uh, reporter for the Chicago Tribune. And he thought that he could easily disprove the Bible, so he started intensely investigating it. Well, to make a, a long story sh short, he, he began to see that it was true, that there was truth in there, and, and, and uh, he ended up coming to faith in Christ. That key word that James uses, it's humble. We need to have the right attitude. We need to be teachable. We need to be yielded would need to be willing to learn and to be changed by the scriptures. Walter was a retired engineer. Uh, he had not gone to church since he was a boy back when his mother took him to their Polish Catholic church in New Jersey. 
I was starting a church-wide Bible study, and, and uh, we sent out letters to the community to invite uh, folks to come and be a part of it, and, and Walter and his wife Ada signed up. And Walter had lots of questions. He never accepted anything that I said on face value. I always had to prove it, you know. He, we spent hours in dialogue. He, he brought that engineer's mind with him. Any of you married to an engineer or you are an engineer, you know exactly what I'm talking about. He wanted to know why. And he began after a while to realize that I couldn't answer every single question that he had. He began to understand that that. Not, not every one of his questions could be answered, but he began to see the basic historical record contained in the scriptures could be trusted. And he began to come to church because he wanted to know more, and, and finally he, he came to faith. If you want to be blessed by the Bible, we need to come to it with a humble, inquiring spirit. Don't act like you know it all, but be open to what God might want to say to you through it. And then we need to spend time reflecting on the word of God. Again, James says, those who listen to the word but do not do what it says are like people who look at their faces in a mirror and after looking at themselves, they go away and immediately forget what they look like. (laughs) So James is using an illustration here. He says that, that God's word is like a mirror. Now, what's a mirror for? Well, the purpose of a mirror is to evaluate ourselves, right? I mean, every morning I I get up and and I look in the mirror to to see all the damage that happened the night before, and then I I fix myself up before I go out in public, before I let anybody see me. You do the same, right? That's why you're giggling. That's why you're laughing right now. See, what good is a mirror, James says, if we look into it and we don't do anything about what we see? James is saying that a mirror reflects what we're like on the outside, but the Bible helps to reflect what we're like on the inside. You ever been reading the Bible, and you're reading along, and suddenly you think, oh my gosh, that's me, that's me. You see, in the book of Hebrews, it says God's word detects the thoughts, the intents, the motives, the desires of a heart. In 2000, Andres Thomas was discovered in a Russian psychiatric hospital. You see, during World War II, he had been drafted into the Hungarian army, and he was taken prisoner by the Russians, but had become ill, and so they transferred this POW to a hospital, but somehow he ended up in a psychiatric hospital, and there he would spend the next 53 years until a doctor discovered what had happened and helped him recover the memories of who he was and where he had come from. The DNA, they were able to identify his family and he was returned to Budapest as a war hero. He was the last World War II prisoner to be returned. And he hadn't seen his face in five decades. And according to the news report, he He would study his face in the mirror for hours because he couldn't believe how he had aged. Imagine 50 years between the first and last time he looked in the mirror. It was startling to him. So James was saying, imagine looking at your own face in a mirror and not recognizing it. James says that's what happens when when we listen to God's word but we don't reflect upon it. 
You see, they are right before their eyes in Scripture. There is an, an accurate reflection of themselves, but they don't see it. See, I think a lot of times we don't reflect on the, on the Bible because we're afraid. We're unwilling to see ourselves as we really are. We don't want to look at that person in the mirror. But if we will, if we will reflect, if we will meditate, the Bible has great value. 2 Timothy chapter 3 reminds us that Scripture has that ability to, to help us mature, to grow in our faith, and to equip us for the work of ministry. So we need to reflect on the Scriptures. We need to ask that question, what does this mean for me? We need to ponder that. We need to spend time with that. We need to, to think about it. We need to pray it. We need to journal it. Whatever it is that helps you to reflect upon the Scriptures, what does this mean for me. And then we need to remember it. The Bible says in James chapter 1, it says, not forgetting what they have heard. I find myself doing that a lot recently. I'll read through a passage of scripture, get to the end. I have no idea what I just read. Anybody else doing that? Okay, good. There's two, three of us. Okay, thank you. <laughs> And so I just go back up and I read through it again. Sometimes I read it out loud because that kind of helps me to remember it. We need to respond to it. See, it's not enough just to remember and to reflect. We also have to respond. We have to act on it. We have to live on it. We have to practice it. We have to be a doer of the word and not just to hear. Again, James says, be not hearers who forget, but doers who act. You see, friends, this thing called life, this isn't practice. This is not rehearsal. We are in the game. And so we have to allow it to change us and to challenge us. Now, our other reading for the week was Psalm 2, and I've not really spoken much about that. There is a lot of evidence that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 were actually meant to be read together as one. But Psalm 2 is what we call a messianic psalm. When it was originally written, it was probably used as part of the liturgy for the crowning of Israel's king. But did you know the New Testament uses Psalm 2 more than any other book of the Bible, of the Old Testament? And verse 7 is echoed 10 times and the rest of the psalm some 8 times. And as you read it, it really doesn't seem to be a messianic psalm. It doesn't seem to be a, about Jesus. It seems to be about conspiracy and rebellion and chains and shackles and a rod of iron. But what the psalmist is trying to, to teach us, the truth that he is trying to instill of in us is this, that, that God rules <laughs> That God is in control, even when life seems out of control, that God is there and we need to submit to his rule. And when we do that, we will find the happiness that we're looking for. You want to be happy? Do you want to be blessed? I want to challenge you as we start this season of Lent to pursue happiness by immersing yourself daily in God's word. Set apart a time, set apart a place, find a good Bible reading plan and get started. And if you need help, any of us on staff would, would love to help you discover a way to plug into it. Open the Bible, read, receive, reflect, remember, 
and respond. Get a daily time to, to meet with God, to listen, to learn, to store it up like treasure that it is. Learn to delight in the law of the Lord. And as you do that through these 40 days, you are more than likely to find, like the psalmist says, that you are a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. And whatever you do, you will prosper and find that happiness that you're pursuing. Let's pray. Oh God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, illuminate us. Teach us how to delight in your word that it may be a a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. Oh God, this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.